My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns, and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement, or other person. All right, let's start the show. Hi everyone, today we are here with Lloyd Nash, who is a GenMed consultant as well as the founder of Global Ideas. Okay, so Lloyd, could you please tell us about your current roles and what they involve? Sure. So I have pretty much a three-track life right now. Uh, I do Indigenous Health in the Kimberley, I do Pacific Island Health in Vanuatu, and then I come home to Melbourne and I work on Global Ideas, which is my global health startup. So uh, when, I'm in, when I'm in the Kimberley, I'm working for the West Australian Government, the West Australian Country Health Service. Uh, in Vanuatu, I work for the Australian Aid Program. And in Melbourne, I'm working for myself, unpaid pro bono. Okay. Um, so could you elaborate a bit more on from when you started medical school and how you've come to be in your roles now? Yeah, so that's a 20-year <laughs> a journey, I guess. I'm older than I look. So uh, I went to undergraduate medicine um, at Melbourne University and did six years of med, lived in college, um, was in the OCSC, was the, uh, was the treasurer of the... <coughs> treasurer of the OCSC. Uh, I then um, started my training at the Royal Melbourne Hospital for clinical training and then I went um, to Ballarat for two years and did um, I did uh, my internship and I stayed there and I did uh, pretty much a generalist rotation in anaesthetics, in paediatrics and I also spent six months doing a diploma in obstetrics obstetrics and gynecology. Um, at that time I came back, um, I came back to Melbourne and uh, started physician training and I went back to the Royal Melbourne and uh, did basic training and then uh, set my exams. At the, at the end of my exam I was uh, pretty tired, exhausted, kind of looking f- to do something different um, and so I didn't uh, apply to do advanced training straight away and in fact I started looking for um, other opportunities and really serendipitously uh, something came up that was the expedition medical officer in Antarctica uh, which <laughs> a little bit different and uh, I so I, I, I applied I um, had some initial discussions I went down to Hobart and, and um, and uh, you know, explored the role. They explored my kind of skills and um, personality, and you know, there's a whole lot of kind of exhaustive testing that has to go on before they send someone to Antarctica. Yeah. Um, so I I actually uh, took on that expedition medical officer role uh, after so kind of in the middle of my of my uh, spe- specialist training, um, and I um, had to have my appendix taken out as all uh, of the medical staff have to have when they're doing a winter in in Antarctica. And then uh, (laughs) I did additional training in in trauma and anaesthetics, in dentistry. I was over at the dental school for a couple of weeks. Went down to Antarctica. I actually flew down on one of the very first flights. Um, The the Australian Antarctic program opened a 
uh, a, f a flight program at the end of 2008. And, uh, and so I uh, flew down at the beginning of 2009 and then uh, I actually developed a, a respiratory allergy and was evacuated shortly after. <laughs> oh, nice. so, uh, so it actually ended in um, disaster, but, uh, but nonetheless seized the opportunities. And, um, and I uh, had uh, the chance then to do something entirely out of the ordinary. And, um, and so I went out to the West and spent half a year in Geraldton um, doing clinical work as a senior medical officer and then I went up to Cape York and spent half a year actually living and working in, in, in an indigenous community called Yarrabah which um, is uh, I, I was doing primary care it's about an hour as the crow flies south of Cairns and it was at that, uh, that time that I started to kind of reflect on what I really wanted to do and and there was, you know, quite a bit of uh, uh, transition, I think, at that time. And I ended up coming back to Melbourne in 2010 to do uh, advanced training in infectious diseases and, and, uh, and general medicine. So I, I came back to the Western Hospital and, and was the infectious diseases registrar for a year. And uh, it was during that time that I, I really felt like I was dislocated. Um, I didn't, uh, the kind of infectious diseases that I wanted to be doing, which was um, kind of global infectious diseases, mm. HIV, TB, hepatitis, um, really wasn't the main focus of my work. It was mainly antimicrobial stewardship. It was fever in the post-operative patient. It was um, a lot uh, a lot of, um, yeah, the kind of very complicated, long-staying patients that were um, not uh, really the kind of uh, reason that I wanted to go into infectious diseases. So, yep. um, so I left infectious diseases and, and can completed general medicine with a year of um, uh, as the senior registrar at Royal Melbourne, and then uh, another year as uh, the, uh, a senior registrar in intensive care. So, I had quite a diverse um, training in general medicine. Uh, I had uh, obviously acute medicine through the senior medical registrar job there was um, research there was um, education pastoral care and obviously through infectious diseases quite quite a, a broad um, technical grounding in infectious diseases which is incredibly useful in the places where i work so um, i really didn't uh, i deliberately didn't take any um, any particular job when i finished my training i really wanted to kind of pause and reflect and keep options open and explore different opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is really different um, to the typical career and perhaps is one of the reasons why my career has kind of panned out rather differently. And that's because uh, I, I didn't um, really lock into a full-time job here in Melbourne right at the beginning of my kind of consultant career. I, um, I took some locum opportunities in kind of regional and remote locations around Australia. I started traveling a lot. Um, I still continued my work um, on uh, the board of the College of Physicians. So I, at, the, at the time I was training, I was um, chairing the trainees committee. I was on the board of the college and, um, and I kind of stepped back into a couple of different um, roles on, in education and workforce. 
and uh, and it was one of those roles actually. It was through the International Health Committee, I think, that uh, that uh, that the opportunity in Vanuatu came up. Um, Vanuatu was exper- you know, has um, is a kind of post-colonial um, society that is now uh, has its you know independence. It's an independent re- republic, but Australia has a fairly strong p- presence through our aid program and. Um, and Australia has been typically sending um, technical specialists uh, in internal medicine, paediatrics, um, anaesthetics, anaesth- uh, gynaecology, obstetrics um, for, for a number of years. And so uh, it just so happened that at the time um, there was a kind of strong workforce shortage in Vanuatu that I could, um, that I could help with and that um, established a kind of longer relationship at that time. So, um, so yeah, it's a kind of um, potted history over the last 20 years, but, um, but uh, I think that the kind of overarching theme was that I, um, when I look back at the kind of medical electives that I did when I was a fifth year medical student, yeah. I spent time in uh, Western Samoa and I spent time in Broken Hill with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And that very much reflects the career that I have today. So um, I think that uh, that there's kind of something in that. I wouldn't have told you at that time back then that that was the career that I would have. But no doubt, I clearly, they were kind of formative experiences. And so um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that, that they have clearly informed the, the kind of choices that I made later in life. So apart from like roles that are more global health oriented, um, did you ever consider like any other specialties or you know working as like in the hospital sort of system? Yeah, there's no doubt no doubt about that. I um, I think that there's a very strong pull to um, having a uh, what you might call a traditional career. I mean, mm. there's a there's a there's a a pathway. There's a almost a conveyor belt. It's um, it's actually very easy uh, for someone who trains in a big kind of tertiary or quaternary hospital um, to follow their own leaders and mentors uh, through advanced training into clinical research, through a PhD into early early, uh, consulting um, and postdoc work and then, um, you know, teaching at the university. There's a very well-worn path. Mm -hmm. And... um, and I think for me that path was, as as someone interested in global uh, global health, um, was uh, you know influenced by the likes of people like Graham Brown, who was the professor of medicine at the Royal Melbourne, and um, was uh, an internationally renowned researcher in malaria, infectious disease consultant, um, consultant to the World Health Organization. So, the kind of well worn path is to choose choose a disease of global relevance and and perform lab or, or clinical yeah. research, um, tie that in with teaching at the university and consulting mm-hmm. at the hospital. And, um, and of, so of course that, um, that was a very kind of um, appealing pathway, but, um, but the kind of uh, reflections that I had while I was um, doing kind of alternative work back in 2009 when I was working out in um, Geraldton and Yarrabah um, was that so much of the uh, outcomes in global health and in, indeed indigenous health are uh, determined by uh, upstream factors. And what I mean by that is um, the, the, 
the social and the economic and the environmental and the political determinants of health. And so what I found was that there's a real gap between kind of knowledge and action, that uh, that it's all well and good and it's very kind of um, in our kind of current uh, paradigm, it's very celebrated to, to have various academic qualifications, publications, lots of contributions to, to knowledge, to research. But there's very little in the way of, um, of uh, I guess, um, understanding of wh- what, uh, what it means to take that knowledge and actually being able to translate that into, into real change in ordinary people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that that's something that's really missing and that's something that I really kind of wanted to reflect deep more deeply on and it was one of the kind of drivers of, of, of founding global ideas. Yeah, sure. Did you find that it was challenging sort of not following a, the regular path? Yeah, it was um, traumatising in <laughs> fact. <laughs> um, because uh, because there's the, the 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 traditional path is is steeped in expectation yeah. and um and so all of the people around you kind of uh, just expect you to do what everyone else is doing and i think that if you even try to do something that's even remotely different people are, are going to start questioning your judgment yeah. and um and you have to be uh i think really strong and i think you have to uh have to know yourself I think self-reflection here is really important you have to understand where your strengths lie because we're not cookie cutter people and so cookie cutter pathways don't make any sense to me so I think you have to really understand who you are and where your strengths lie where your passions are and I think that uh, that if you do that um, then the the kind of pathways that you that you will want to take will materialize because uh, because you you will be able to follow your passions you'll be able to follow your um, the, the kind of impact that you want to see you'll be able to follow your own um, worldview mm-hmm. and uh, and that uh, that means that that will generate its own success yeah. and uh, and so I really encourage people to think hard about uh, what it is that they believe about the world how is it how is it that they want to change it where their strengths and passions lie and to really go for it to go for it even in the face of adversity if there's any doctors you'd like us to interview or if there's any questions you'd like asked please shoot us a message we listen and respond to every single message that comes through Right now, can you tell us a bit about what your typical day or week would involve? Yeah, I don't have a typical day or a typical week, and that yeah. was um, one of the one of the reasons I chose to do this kind of work is that I didn't, I don't like routine, okay. and um, and I really uh, I like the kind of spontaneity and diversity of the work that I do. So, if I was to describe a typical day in the Kimberley. The Kimberley is uh, uh, an enormous place. It's a you know it's a, a geographic region, probably about the size of Victoria, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's maybe almost uh, a little less than forty thousand people living there um, across uh, a, yeah a huge geographical area. And so we have four physicians that share a little more than two jobs. And so at any given time, there's there's two physicians in the Kimberley, one in Broome, which is kind of the capital of the Kimberley, and one. Um, doing outreach 
And so if I'm, um, if I'm doing outreach, I'll be uh, basically on the road for a week, and that might be flying or driving, visiting Aboriginal medical services, visiting regional and remote hospitals. Um, I'll arrive at a, at, at a clinic or a hospital. There'll be a list of patients that have been referred to see me. We, do, we only see patients that have been referred. We don't do primary care. And so um, I then uh, uh, see those patients in the clinic. I'll, if I'm in a remote or a regional hospital, I'll see any acute patients that are uh, in the hospital that need physician input. I'll be on call for acute medical services in, in Broome or in Kununurra or in Derby, one of the big bigger hospitals in the region mm -hmm. um, and uh, and in in the evenings I might have to drive to another clinic or I might have to uh, stay over in a community or I might be flying out so it's highly highly unpredictable we have a kind of a uh, a, a rotating roster that goes for about six weeks that um, takes in various different uh, locations across the across the region and it's wonderful because we really do get to explore you know I, I get to commute to work in light plains and yeah. um, and I get to see the desert in the summer and in the winter in the wet season in the dry uh, the, we're having a particularly wet season I just um, spent the last month in the Kimberley and and the the whole desert is glowing green it's it's incredible to look at mm. so I'm really uh, yeah I, I can't say that I have a typical day um, yeah. the the work that I do in the Kimberley is mainly clinic-based. The work that I do in the um, in Vanuatu is a, is is more weighted to acute medicine, more hospital inpatients, um, but also uh, we do daily clinics there also. And then when I'm here in Melbourne, I'm working on global ideas, so I'm uh, I might be uh, taking meetings with external stakeholders. I might be working on our programs, um, talking to our marketing communications teams, or uh, in fact, this very week I've been working on developing. Um, one of our programs, which is Design Jams, which we're delivering uh, this Saturday at Save the Children on Global Mental Health. So uh, highly variable and, and really exciting. Very cool. Um, so how much time would you say you'd spend overseas um, and how do you decide how to split your time between clinical work and non-clinical work? Uh, I've uh, essentially tried to keep the three tracks in, in, in a fair balance. Yeah. Uh, so about kind of a third a third a third in very general terms mm -hmm. um but uh but also inside that i um because uh, i don't work full-time i i get the opportunity to go to a couple of international conferences so i generally go to a global health conference in north america and in europe yeah. each year um and uh and also sometimes you know travel to explore so last year i um was uh you know camping in the, the jungle in the Amazon, for example, um, which is not clinical, yeah. um, but but you know it's a uh, an incredible part of the world, and so I definitely wanted to have time to be able to do that. Um, that's one of my passions: is exploring, meeting people, learning culture, learning language, yeah. and uh, so yeah. At the moment, um, I actually spend m more time away from home than I spend at home, and um, you know that can be a bit disruptive. That's uh, not for everyone, mm -hmm. but uh, but it's it's something that uh, I wanted to do, so I'm doing it for now. Okay. Um, can you please tell me a bit about Global Ideas and your inspiration behind forming the organization? Sure. So Global Ideas really started in about 2011. I remember at the time I was the chair of the trainees committee at the College of Physicians. I was attending the AMA Council of Doctors in Training meetings as, as an observer and, 
And uh, I remember one weekend in Canberra, we had a meeting and I sat down at breakfast um, with a couple of young kind of passionate people who were really interested in global health. And we were really talking about kind of how the, the global health career was rather moribund um, and uh, that, that, uh, that it didn't feel kind of interesting or exciting or necessarily very impactful because, um, you know, there'd been, you know, there's a, there was kind of serious amount of cynicism with um, like uh, la- really a lack of change and dynamism in the sector. And, uh, and also we saw that medical workers, you know, we were all, we were all doctors, um, were kind of very passionate, enthusiastic about global health at the beginning of their career, particularly their student days, mm-hmm. and then um, often sort of drop out in the early part of their career while they pursue kind of training or families. Yeah and then come back to it often later in life, maybe even in retirement. And that seemed odd to me, and I wondered whether that was a lack of opportunities or whether that was a genuine lack of interest. And so there was a, a few reasons that uh, that we, we wanted to create Global Ideas. One was that we really wanted to disrupt the global health career. We wanted to bring in um, uh, more uh, innovative perspectives into global health by by bringing together a truly radically interdisciplinary community um, to bring people from inside of health and development but also outside of health and development so bring in designers and entrepreneurs and architects and engineers and and really start to have those conversations across difference because we because what i find is that genuine innovation happens when people see the same problem from two different perspectives and often even you know, especially in health and medicine, we're we're, we're very siloed. We speak to each other in our own languages, um, with our own kind of technical jargon, and uh, and we're kind of almost territorial in that sense. And and uh, and so much of the kind of um, academic world feels like it's um, kind of turf war, like it's protecting something. Yeah. And so uh, so I really we we really wanted to to disrupt that and get. Um, conversations going across difference bring in a really radically in, interdisciplinary community and create the networks that were required f- to have uh, kind of uh, um, new pathways into into the global health career that were not just um, through NGOs and IGOs but also including social entrepreneurship and mm-hmm. um, advocacy and um, some of the kind of using some of the kind of 21st century change to- change tools that were were coming about so the the uh, initially we we started with the global ideas forum um, in order a to build that community but also to start um, developing people's knowledge and skills um, so that they could take action through the context of their own careers and so global ideas has um, really uh, blossomed really as a as a global health education um, entity yeah. and uh, we've really focused on on leadership and capacity development for global health by um, really focusing on developing the the knowledge and the skills of net and the networks of the next generation of global health workers from uh, from a really radically diverse um, community so our mission is uh, to create and connect the next generation of global health leaders yeah um, has the project evolved since it started and were there any major pivot points definitely so uh, the project has definitely evolved and 
Um, that was uh, quite explicit. So we kind of paused at the end of 2014. We'd done a few conferences and we talked to our crowd and we talked to the people that were interested in, in global health and really asked them what, what it was that they wanted, what more did they want from global ideas, mm. what were we doing well, what could we improve. And there were a couple of things that came out of that. One is that they wanted to uh, hear and see more of us. So uh, it's very difficult to really build skills um, knowledge and networks in just a two and a half day weekend which is where w what we were running with our forum yeah. and uh, and then secondly they uh, you know really wanted to get more into uh, sustainable development and and also the the kind of newer 21st century change tools and uh, and I kind of serendipitously came across the um, the idea of design thinking or human-centered design around about that time because um, IDEO, uh, which is a global design consultancy, uh, spun off a, a, a non-profit arm, IDEO.org, which published a toolkit for d development um, using design thinking methodology, and it's it's a big it's a big book. It's about 165 pages, and um, and I really read it from cover to cover, and I was fascinated about how they really tied together research and action in really practical ways and uh, and used kind of a lot of the philosophy of innovation that we'd been talking about at Global Ideas but didn't really quite have the language codified. And so so we, at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, uh, sorry, we uh, started to think about what other programs uh, we could we could launch in order to really take the project forward and so we came up with two one was the global ideas labs mm -hmm. and that is our program that runs monthly so it's very much about community activation and engagement and the content is is health in sustainable development so we look at the intersections of health in the sustainable development agenda so you probably have heard about the global goals there's 17 of them and um and so, uh, you know, not all of the uh, of the goals relate to health, but there's health in a lot of the goals. Mm -hmm. Health itself has one whole goal, um, goal three, I believe. But uh, but if you think about um, climate change or water or um, you know uh, gender rights, there's there's health issues that you can find across the entire agenda. And so we wanted to really flesh those out and explore those using our model. Um, and we have a kind of a specific model looking at you know what is the challenge that we're looking at what are the range of solutions and what what is the call to action what can i do individually and collectively mm -hmm. in order to create change and so uh, we launched the labs program um, last year and uh, so it's it's uh, gathering steam we've had our first uh, event in um, 2017 we have another one coming up in about a month and then the other program is uh, design jams and design jams was really to take the IDEO uh, toolkit and to be able to teach it in an applied way to a new kind of community so um, so what we do with design jams is that we partner with organizations who are working in uh, global health and development so who have on the ground operations who are facing a real world global health challenge mm -hmm. we invite them to share their challenge with us and we put together a little interdisciplinary team um, 20 30 people and we work through that challenge using the design thinking methodology and through that process it's very much applied learning through that process what we hope to do is be able to teach the kind of philosophy the tools and the methods of human-centered design in the global health context and 
and the goal the goal is not necessarily to kind of come up with disruptive innovations we don't have the time available for that we usually run out jams over one or two days so really the outcomes for us is about um, the development of the people in our crowd using the tools and methods so um, so we hope to improve people's understanding awareness and um, and their kind of uh, ability to apply design thinking in the context of their own careers yeah. and so we hope that they'll be able to take that back to their own organizations be it an NGO or an IGO or a corporate um, or even perhaps spin off um, some of these initiatives into social enterprises so it's um, kind of a it's kind of a long game and I hope that we'll be able to um, continue to grow that program and maybe even in future develop a sort of a global health hub for Melbourne in terms of um, you know the development of, of, of new initiatives and, pro- and projects in global health that are particularly focused on developing new products and services that have a sustainable business model. So you know we're not um, so much focused on program development or program management or policy. I think that um, design really lends itself to um, developing um, to developing new kind of entrepreneurial initiatives because the, the, the thinking is very much tied into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said you were kind of looking for people from all different areas. Mm. Um, how did you go about choosing your team and even now when it's developing even further, how are you finding people to take part in Global Ideas? Well, initially we we really worked through our own network, so we were fairly medically heavy at the beginning yeah. and um, we've been really explicit about changing that. So even if um, even if we have a lot of applications from... The health and medical community were really explicit about actually selecting people from diverse backgrounds over and above those applications uh, so I was really keen to get people in from business development from marketing communications finance um, and people who have just uh, have had different experiences in life so um, people who have worked in the development context and who haven't just kind of uh, been on a on a particular pathway um, and because you know we we, we wanted um, risk takers we wanted people who see the world differently who are passionate who really are wanting to make an impact in the in the context of their career mm. so uh, so we ha- we get people from a, a mix of um, referral through our networks um, applications through our website we advertise in in various different channels across social media and uh, you know our team is growing it's at the moment it's a full volunteer team so um so it means that people are working in their discretionary time maybe a few hours in an evening on a weekend um and uh and so that uh really allows us to kind of capture the the energy that people have that um they want to come out of their regular job they want to associate with new networks they want to meet people that are like them but uh, you know, like them in the way that they think about the world, but perhaps unlike them in the in in the experiences that they've had, so that they can learn from one another. Um, so yeah, so we've been pretty successful at that. We always can be, we can always do better, and uh, and we're always uh, really um, advertising and recruiting on a re- on a recurrent basis. Yeah. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab, that's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show.
Um, so for someone who is interested in global or public health, how would you recommend they sort of start getting involved or pursue their passion? I think that the best way to start is actually yeah. to do a master in public health. Okay. I um I did a master in public health and it's a it's a sort of an entry level opportunity for breadth. Okay. Um and and I think that what that does it that there are there are many kinds of master in public health and it really um you know we could talk about that all day but uh but I think it's important to have a solid breadth understanding of the, the nature of the challenges in global health, some of the facts about how global health is changing, particularly recently, because there's a lot of legacy in global health. You know, mm. there's a lot of myth. Um, and uh, and I think that it's important to be absolutely uh, up to date in, in the way that we um, perceive the challenges because they change so quickly. And so I... Um, I do recommend to people who are who are wanting to start a career in, in in global health that they do start with a master in public health, um, and that is not necessarily a prerequisite. But I I have found that incredibly valuable. I started um, uh, a master in public health actually while I was in Antarctica, yeah. um, and then ended up uh, completing it part time while I was working. And what I found was that I started off. With, with that very traditional mindset that I needed to do stats and epidemiology and public policy. Um, and in fact, in the end, I, uh, I ended up doing things around um, global health systems and systems design and management and, and something that I would never have thought about when I started. And so I think that there's really no rush. Um, I don't recommend people try and um, kind of just get it out of the way. I think that it's um, something that should evolve as you evolve and as your thinking and worldview changes, um, you can adapt that as well. And mm-hmm. so um, that's definitely one way to start. If you don't want to invest the time and, infor- and of course, the cost um, yeah. of, of doing a master in public health or in global health, there are a lot of massively open online courses or MOOCs or online learning that are available that are free. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I've done a couple of those as well, and I really, um, they're not comprehensive, but they're a great um, entry-level kind of teaser, if you like, a taster. Um, there's one at Duke University, there's uh, Copenhagen, I think that the uh, Geneva Institute, um, Graduate Institute in Geneva runs one. Uh, so there are some really good um, free online learning uh, tools around, and um, and I encourage you to explore, I think even Harvard now has a um, had, well, they certainly have uh, uh, MOOCs available. I, I, I recently did one um, on uh, social entrepreneurship in, in, in development. And so, um, you know, there's the beauty of those, of those um, courses. They're effectively risk-free. You pay almost nothing to, to sign up. Mm-hmm. You do it in your spare time. And there's so much to explore. There's, you know, many, many, um, uh, you know, skills that you can acquire just um, you know, from the comfort of your own bedroom. Yeah. Do you think there's a sort of a good time to pick up a degree like a master of public health, like taking time off after internship or maybe as a medical student or? Mm. I don't think that you can recommend that there's a good time. I think yeah. that that very much depends on your life and your life stage and your worldviews. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, my my advice is that don't 
um, rushing to it. Don't try and get it out of the way because what I think um, is that you get a lot more out of these things if you've had some experience in life and in your career. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I uh, I would suggest that perhaps it's better to have some experience, whether it be volunteering or field work or program work or um, something in entrepreneurship. I, I really think that coming back to adult education is probably the best idea. Yeah. Having said that, it's not necessarily the right thing to do. And, uh, and that you, you can never really make a bad decision. I mean, I don't think that doing a, a master's degree straight out of um, university is necessarily a bad thing because a it can open up your your eyes to various different pathways and um, and you know maybe new opportunities will flow from there mm-hmm. and so I think you really do have to give uh, consideration to kind of where you're at you know whether you have a relationship or whether you want to have babies or buy a house and you know there's there's many different things that might compete for your time and money yeah. and so um, so I think that uh, I would recommend just to um you know not not to plan too hard but mm-hmm. uh but to think about you know my my strong advice is to think about what it is that you believe about the world how that you think that your unique skills and interests can change it and that you can hone those skills and interests through higher learning whether it be through um an academic degree or online learning or through experience there's many ways um, in order to improve your, your knowledge and skills of an area. Um, and, uh, and none of them are, are right or wrong. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, are there any specialties that you think are more sort of suitable for someone wanting to pursue global health and overseas work? For example, you're okay, you do general medicine. Is that because it's more sort of needed overseas than, for yeah. example, like neurosurgery? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, uh, I chose general medicine partly because of its application in the context that I wanted to work. I yeah. also did a diploma in obstetrics for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so if I think about the kind of clinical specialties that are particularly useful in, in, um, in non-traditional settings, then um, general medicine, general surgery, pediatrics, obstetric gynecology, mm-hmm. um, anesthetics, emergency medicine, um, they really kind of strike me as being essential. Um, then there are some others that, uh, that potentially useful and, um, you know, there's a urologist in, in, um, Vanuatu, for example, radiology can be useful. In fact, radiology is, be- is becoming more and more interesting with the advance of technology because, um, as uh, the uh, internet uh, connectivity of, of less, uh, less developed countries improves, then, then there's a kind of global network for mm-hmm. reporting, for example. So, um, so you can be sitting in London reporting films from Vanuatu. So there's, uh, there's definitely lots of opportunities um, to, to do kind of really impactful work in, in places that are remote or or less well served and um but i think that that one of the the true keys are that you you know they they need generalists Mm -hmm. and generalism is is very valuable here at home as well as abroad and um and if you want to have that kind of career then i would suggest not to specialize too early but rather um spend some time you know working across different domains because it will definitely come in handy how would you say your sort of work life and friend balances at the moment? 
Well, I mean, it's great. I, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, I had to spend 20 years trying to develop a career that, that, uh, of which I was in total control. And, yeah. uh, and so, um, I, uh, you know, I think that you have to kind of have a very clear idea of what uh, a great life looks like for you mm-hmm. and, and that, um, you should be spending you know time working towards that from, from the beginning. And, um, and, you know, I think that in the modern world, the idea of work life balance is a little bit outdated. I think that, uh, it sort of dates from our kind of industrial, um, uh, conceptualization of the world of work where you kind of clock on and clock off mm-hmm. and when you're at work you're doing menial tasks that are um, you know that are essentially depriving you of your liberty mm-hmm. and then you get to clock off and then you know life starts again and I think that that's probably not how modern work looks like and certainly not mm-hmm. for professionals um, who presumably go into their their work because they're passionate about it they want to use their work to grow their skills and influence they want to use their work to to deliver social impact Mm -hmm. and so I think that my my suggestion to people is to is to make sure that they find themselves in work that that uh, essentially allows them the autonomy in order to do the kind of things that they're passionate about to do the things that are going to grow their skills and their stature and to do the things that they see will actually deliver good outcomes for their communities and for their societies rather than necessarily, you know, for, for their, their shareholders or their, um, their bank balance. Um, and I think that, that people of our generation really get that. I think that, uh, people, um, in the millennial generation, are more likely to, to want to have community impact and to kind of live and work differently um perhaps sacrifice some income in order to have more time with their family and their Mm -hmm. friends and that's something that i've certainly done um i think we'll see people working part-time um i think we'll see people working from home i think we'll you know and and so it's really work integrated life rather than work life balance and uh and it's easier to do that with certain professions and you know the kind of uh uh, I think that the popularity of general practice is increasing for that reason. Mm. But, um, but you know, there's g- general practice is certainly not the only area of medicine that has a lot of flexibility. Yeah. So um, I think that people should uh, think hard about, um, you know, what a great life looks like for them and, um, and really work towards that. And it's not too hard. Um, you know, it's certainly possible to do. Mm, that's good to know. <laughs> Okay, so that's pretty much all the questions that I have for you today. Um, but be- before we finish, is there any advice that you have for medical students or interns or anyone who's sort of interested in global health? Uh, many. <laughs> much. <laughs> much advice. Uh, I, think that, um, I think that advice is uh, one of those things that is uh, that needs to be taken with a gigantic grain of salt. Yeah. I think that you, uh, I think that people who give advice tend to uh, tell you to do things that they wanted to do, would have done, or did themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I think that uh, you know um, you need to be patient with people who supply advice, but uh, but I think that you know you should put it directly into your filing cabinet. <laughs> 
Um, I uh, I think that um, so there's the, the that's the the pretext to, yeah. to me giving you advice. I um, I think that the the first thing to say is to to know yourself to be a, to really understand where your really your unique passions and strengths lie. And mm-hmm. we spent some time at Global Ideas developing what we call personas, and um, and we came up with five, and there were sort of archetypes or groups of 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 people who have various different worldviews for how they might change the world. And mm-hmm. and we we made we, we kind of narrowed it down to five different personas. And I think it's worth just running through them because um, it's uh, it, it kind of takes um, takes you from uh, the the pointy end of innovation in science through to all the way through to the kind of um, more generalist public policy or international pub, uh, public policy. So the first person we've called Incha the Innovator. So that's very much someone who's on on the cutting edge of science, who's creating new knowledge, new technologies, um, who might be spending time in the lab or you know in in a corporation creating new products and services. And then there's uh, um, enterprising Erin who. Essentially, is an entrepreneur uh, who is very much taking those new products and services to market, and maybe um, developing new markets, maybe working in social entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of value to be created if we get entrepreneurship right. And you know, if we, I think that we need to, you know, there's another conversation to be had about how um, companies should be creating value um, in the 21st century, and then the. Um, Next one is Carlos the campaigner. So I think we perhaps underestimate the value of ag- advocacy, mm-hmm. and uh, and and advocacy and education for changing hearts and minds and really creating that political space that uh, that is so necessary uh, to create kind of widespread change. And then the next one is uh, grassroots Greg. So there's definitely still a role for the kind of you know hard slog of community development, going out into communities, living with people, mm-hmm. talking with people. Um, and uh, and doing good community development work, and then finally um, policy po, and that's the person who might be working in government or policy or international organisations, thinking about the kind of top-down frameworks that we need in order to create you know healthier, safer, safer lives and communities, and and uh, and indeed a safer planet. So um, you know we encourage people to think about who do who do you most strongly identify with yeah. and um and if so uh you know do you have the the, the requisite um, knowledge and skills in order to be able to actually execute on this and if not how can we help and so i uh i would encourage people to think about global health not in very narrow terms not in health technical terms mm-hmm. but rather in um uh, rather thinking about how can be i be active on the upstream drivers of health and as i said these are the political social economic and environmental determinants and so um in order to, to, to do that, you need a very generalist education, and I suggest start by coming to Global Ideas. <laughs> well, that's very good advice. Thank you for joining us today, Lloyd. Thanks for having me. It was really good to have you here. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. Alright guys, see you next week.